As business owners, entrepreneurs, family men, it's difficult for us to find the time to put together projects like these. Even though it's something we really want to do, unfortunately, taking care of the things we have to take care of comes first. However, because of viewer support for people like you, we're able to continue doing this. Please consider joining our Patreon and supporting the Burn and Return podcast. Listening to Burn and Return, a weekly one hour podcast covering news from the agricultural and turf grass industries. Thank you, everybody, for tuning in to another episode of Burn and Return. Uh, for those of you that are tuning in for the first time, we hope you stick around uh, as one of my favorite things to say is that we're assholes, we're not scumbags, and so we're going to try and share the news that we have come across over the last week or two uh, and talk about uh, maybe maybe little deep dives on it so that way you can stay up to date with what's going on in the world and how it influences the green industry. And in uh, things that need to be dissected a little further, we'll take it a little further and see what we can unpack there. And hopefully by the end of this, everybody's a bit more educated uh, and if we're not capable of doing that, at least you had some laughs along the way, uh, which is, to be honest, our entire priority through this is more entertainment than anything else. And so uh, I think it's for, for what it's worth. We're here to entertain. And if you don't find us entertaining, that's perfectly OK, too. We, we will continue to do this, whether you think we're funny or not. Uh, but listen, the real reason why we're funny on this show is nothing to do with me. It has to do with these two guys over here, Mr. Ryan DeMay and Ray Ito. <laughs> Gentlemen, how in the hell are you doing? Well, hey, uh, a couple of things real quick. I'm I'm super excited to be here. It's uh, Father's Day, so happy Father's Day uh, to, uh, to you, Matthew, and to all the fathers out there. Ray, who is our agronomic father, right, that we look up to and probably should <laughs> be, Daddy Ray. Be, beat us more as, as children and... Jay Pink, who's the father of this show, because let's be honest, if he didn't wrangle up all of us goddamn kids, we wouldn't get anywhere. So thank you to all the fathers. We appreciate you. And uh, can I I'm, go on I'm a tangent well. real quick? You can. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, it's going to be a good one. Okay. For, the, for, the, for the fathers that are out there, I want you to take it upon yourself this Father's Day to be the absolute best dad that you can possibly be, be the absolute best partner to your spouse that you can possibly be because the whole premise behind being a man is being the best that you can be day in and day out to support your kids, to support your family, to support your partner. So think about that each and every day when you're having a shitty day and you feel like being a, being an asshole or whatever, don't suck it up, tough it out, put a smile on your face, take care of your family. That's what's most important. All right. That's it. That's all I have. Great message. Great message. It's only turf. It will grow back, but your kids will grow up and move on, and you'll have nothing left to show for it. So the wise, wise <laughs> person that, that's told right. me that. Why? Wise. Why are you putting me in the nursing home? Because you're an asshole. That's why. See yep. ya. Because she, yeah. Shady Pines Ma. And <laughs> that was actually that, that was actually my threat. However, 
because my dad was such a good dad, that was not his feet. Okay? <laughs> you know, that was not my father's feet. Because he was such a good dad, I said, I, I told him, I joke about Shady Pines all the time, but dad, you're too good for that. So don't <laughs> worry. <laughs> they're, they're, yeah, they're I've, I don't think it'll be Shady Acres for me. I think it'll be a uh, sealy posturepedic pillow that smothers my face. Really, <laughs> I'd probably I would ask for it. I deserve to. Uh, I, I would ask, I would ask for it. But all right, listen, a uh, lot of headlines to dive into tonight. Some deep ones too. Yeah, Jay Payne, kick us off on the headlines here. I'm breathing into the microphone on purpose. Nothing to fear here. This is just the Oh, what a funny thing to start that off with. Nothing to fear here. This is just the news. Just kidding. Just kidding. This is just the news. And what is absolutely frightening as hell to me is the way this article is titled is pure politicization. This is politic fodder right here. And it is designed to make people crazy and to draw an association between two things that are regarded as bad to link them together. And so one cannot think of one without the other being in the same realm. And this will be the headline. Court rejects rejects Trump-era EPA finding that weed killer safe. And what are they talking about? They're making it a a, a prominent stance of of Trump's uh, uh, presidency that he was a major proponent of glyphosate, as if that was like his 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 policies that he, how he envisioned America being run somewhere in that top ten was the use of glyphosate for every man, woman, and child uh, across the world. And the reason why they're doing this is to make people crazy and to demonize to demonize glyphosate. That is the only reason. And I'm I'm sorry if. Uh, and gentlemen on, on the panel, I'll let y'all have your your own say on this, but that is 100% how this reads to me. And it goes on to continue, actually, so it, 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 listen to this, this first line here. This isn't even the byline. This is the first line right here. Uh, a federal appeals court on Friday rejected a Trump administration finding that the active ingredient in the weed kill roundup does not pose a serious health risk and is not likely to cause cancer in humans. Here we go. It was a Trump administration finding that that uh, oh, glyphosate does <laughs> does not post. Never mind the fact that there's been over a thousand trials conducted across many, many, many over the last forty years. Over the last forty years, but all of a sudden, this is a Trump deal. What in the hell is going on? This is insane. The Center for Food Safety, one group's challenge decision, called Friday's ruling a historic victory for farm workers and the environment. Legal critics said the EPA shirked its duties under the Endangered Species Act. We agree and remand for the agency for further consideration, wrote Friedland, a nominee for former President Barack Obama. The decision gives voice to those who suffer from glyphosate's cancer, non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. EPA's no-cancer-risk conclusion did not stand up to scrutiny. The court agreed the EPA needed to ensure the safety of endangered species before greenlighting projects. Okay. And we can go on and on here. This is clearly uh, an article that is uh, under, for all intents and purposes, let's shit on glyphosate. So 
If we have to do this again, let's continue to do this. First and foremost, uh, there have been three recent articles that have come out, and Jay Pink, I've list one, listed one here from uh, TNF Online. Uh, this is a white paper that was uh, conducted, and uh, this research study here shows um, the effect of uh, glyphosate-based herbicides on human health were studied at the cellular level based on their toxicity to liver, lungs, and nerve tissue. The inhibitory toxicity to cell viability by glyphosate-based herbicides was examined with cell-based systems using three human cell lines, PEPG2, A549, and SHSY5Y. Data obtained showed that all tested ethoxylated formulants and their mixtures with declared active ingredient glyphosate, uh, uh, isopropylamine salt, have significant inhibitory effect on cell proliferation while the declared active ingredient has no toxicity. So what's interesting is that this actually had cell proliferation inhibitory effects, meaning that when it came to cancers, glyphosate, isopropylamine salt, actually slowed the development of cancer. This is not the only one. This is one of three that have been published within the last three years. Out of 16 regulatory agencies in the world, 15 have declared glyphosate as non-toxic. There is only one. And this whole thing began back in 2012 with Seralini and his uh, 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 activism that was put out there. And it's been amplified over and over and over. And so now to really drive it in, to absolutely drive this in and to breach peak state of mania among the population, how do you do that? You demonize it by uh, equating glyphosate to arguably the most controversial administration we've ever had, the Trump administration. And they're linking that together right now while the January 6th hearings are going on just to drive a further wedge. This is one more thing that you fall into, that if you support the use of glyphosate, therefore you are ultra MAGA. Is, is, that's the landscape now that we're doing. That if you don't... Uh, I, I can't even fucking talk about what I actually wanted to say right there, and it's infuriating because we would be kicked off uh, uh, YouTube instantaneously. Now, and what I want to know, and what I want to know, we have reached such weird, critical levels of idiocy and bizarreness, and you're either on this side or that side, that the where does it end? Where does this end? We disregard any and everything that points to uh, uh, whether it's rooted in science, safety protocols, whatever. Now, how controversial is it to say I support science? That's a controversial thing to say now because you can cut the data to, to make it state whatever it is you want to state. So it's all at this point, it is all what side of the eye, what team are you on? And if you're on that team, you have to align 100% down the board this way. There's no faltering. There's no wavering. You're on this or you're that. There's no in-between. There's no more gray area. This is nuts. This is nuts. And it pisses me off because there's no more honesty taking place. Ray, Ryan, someone else talk about this. Is th This is designed to make people crazy, right? Uh, yeah, I think from a headline, I mean... Uh 
headline writing is one of the most important things that you can do in journalism, right? It's one of the jobs that not everybody gets to do. And so when uh, you are afforded and earn that opportunity, right, you have to write good headlines. So, you know, you could say that this did its job. It, it's It's caught people's attention and things like that. So let's unpack and think about what you're saying. And I agree with most of it. I think that uh, conflating these issues and kind of bringing them together, right, is uh, clearly trying to drive a wedge, right, and say, hey, like what you said, this is a one-sided affair. You're either in or you're out, and I don't know that that's the case. I I think that, um, you know, (laughs) how do I say this without getting us kicked off either? Um, I believe in all facets you have to trust science, right? And what has the science told us over and over and over again? Even last week, Matt, you weren't here, but there was an article from the EU, right? The European Union, their scientists just recently, within the last month or two, said that glyphosate is not carcinogenic. They're doing a larger study to look at real-world uses, right? So uh, I'm assuming residues and things like that and water water quality, um, things of that nature. And that's going to come out next summer, next July, and we'll have a little bit better, you know, a little bit better viewpoint on that. But here's my thing is if we're trusting the science, and I think all three of us, regardless of whatever political disposition that you have, I think we're all three men that would say, hey, we trust the science, right? We think that if it was one study and it was like, you know, an outlier, eh, maybe not. But numerous studies, numerous, the most the same thing over and over and over again. Yes, it is. It is the most researched active ingredient that we have out there in the marketplace in history, too. Yes. Really, in yes, history, this is this, this was the most thoroughly researched uh, product. Yet, to me, this is a super disturbing trend. And do you know why this is so disturbing to me? Tell me. This, this just politicizes science. Yep. So, for example. If we don't agree with something, uh, we just attach it to our political demon of the day. And by the way, this is not the first issue where the public's perception and response to various issues has been thoroughly poisoned by it being attached to a political figure. And I'm not going to go any further than that because, of course, I don't want us to get kicked it's off. It's so obvious what you're mi- talking about, and that's exactly it. I, that was with the wormhole I was going to go down, but you can't because I'm scared that I'm going to set off some sort of AI software that's going to that's going to shut it down. You know, it's uh, uh, yeah, yeah. We, we, we better not. We yeah, we better not go there. But okay, the fact of the matter is, Matt, is that I have seen this even in the 1980s and the 1990s in that already the science around pesticides 
has become so political. Okay, so political. I mean, because in the 1980s, it was if you are in favor of this certain pesticide, oh, you are on this side of the political aisle. But let me ask you this. Whether you're right or left, uh, don't you still all have to eat? Hmm? I mean, don't you still all have to eat? And I was gonna and tell I, me I, I now. Was... And, no. and also, whether you be right or left, tell me now that you are not also subject to the same public health vectors no matter which way you vote. Okay, because that's kind of what, what I'm getting at, because uh, the world especially developing countries, has suffered due to certain pesticides being unfairly demonized and campaigned against. And I'm, and I'm talking about diseases like malaria. I mean, people suffer as a result of their country getting a political hair up their ass and saying, it is more important for us to be, quote unquote, environmentally correct. And what that means is that if you have a lot of malaria bearing mosquitoes, my whole unfortunate, it's more important to be environmentally and politically correct. There. And hang on, hang on, to me. I, I, want, I want you to follow up on that. And there's one more thing I want to say to add a little bit of diesel fuel to the fire real quick at a very high velocity. And I'm, I want to go back to where we were talking about Stephanie Seneff, the MIT researcher who uh, was the one who uh, unpacked the influence that glyphosate has theoretically on the gut biome and how uh, that is uh, uh, the reason why we have uh, autism rates developing like we do. And again, you know, that is one of the things that was also looked at. And if you look, there are so many people that stand on that. When we did that video on that, it's hilarious. I still get comments every week on it of somebody chiming in and being like, you're a piece of shit. You don't understand. Stephanie Seneff is a PhD. Who are you? Blah, 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 blah. And it has been looked at. And here's the thing is that you would have to consume a 150 pound person would have to consume 330 pounds of legumes in a single sitting consumed repeatedly over many months to get a high enough dose of glyphosate to damage his or her gut microbes. Holy that's cow, man. Not that's a lot of beans. That's feasible. a lot of beans. <laughs> that's not that feasible. But it's the stance that's being stood on to demonize this to say that you're either on this side or you're on that side. You're either with Trump or you're against Trump. Glyphosate is pro glyphosate is is ultra maga. Anti glyphosate is who is Biden. I don't know. I don't know, but that's what it feels like. And why are they it doing is. this now? What, what were you going to say, Demay? Because I, 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 I need some <laughs> level-headedness in here because I'm not real rich in it right now. <laughs> I, I think it's it's uh, just commentary. Highly unfortunate that we can't have these discussions and have people who will sit there and say, well, because 
he or she says this this is mu- this must be their political ideology that it's it is so uh now ingrained right in terms of positions you take on certain issues or thoughts that you have that we cannot think cognitively and for ourselves any longer that to me is troubling uh, scary and just okay. really fucked yep. up so there's okay. that part uh, go ahead ray mhm okay and this is a larger trend where and this was revealed to me in like the last uh, three years in that for a lot of people something happened to us where we are unwilling and unable to accept any kind of perceived risk okay that is that is what uh stephanie Sinef plays on is that she makes the claim that exposure to glyphosate will increase risk of autism and other problems. I mean, because, hey, there, glyphosate is not only blamed for autism, it's also blamed for various autoimmune conditions. But again, this all goes to what is the role of risk in our lives. And you know what? The corollary to that is, is that knowing what one's risk is, how much responsibility is the individual willing to take for that risk? Because this is where our society is going, is that, we as a society and societies throughout the world are getting to where individuals no longer want to take any kind of responsibility for any risk. Uh, they want to make it somebody else's problem. And you know what, guys? That is super foreign to me. And do you know why that is super foreign to me? Mm. It is because I had a father who, if I got hurt, or did something to get in trouble, my father would not be looking to blame somebody else. He'd be whooping my ass hard and telling me, don't do it again because you getting in trouble ain't somebody else's fault. It's your fault. I I think this issue, like (laughs) many other that we face right now, you know, so (laughs) whether it's in medicine and pharmaceuticals whether it's in mm-hmm. uh energy production you know oil and gas versus electric uh, you know electric or green or whatever uh it is all the same we have <laughs> been fast forwarded to the precipice of massive huge changes in these fields right think mm-hmm. about this you know to develop uh, to develop uh a vaccine 5 years ago would have taken 10 years, right? Would have taken a, a decade, right? It did it in a year. And now you, you hear about what, what is happening now with mRNA vaccines and how they're looking at that for other things, right? You think about, you know, where we're going with energy and how we're in, like, the bully pulpit right now because, hey, guess what? Nobody wants to invest those billions of dollars of profit into more gasoline refineries they're going to hold on as much as they can, right? If you're oil and gas and if you're 
green energy, right? What's in your way? A lot of stuff, right? You got to figure this part of this stuff out. And right now, who's trapped in the middle is people, right? Same thing with the medical field. Who's trapped in the middle between these diseases and between everything that we face with the technology and the money that is backing it? People. Last thing is this, right? Is agriculture. Where are we at right now with with climate and weather and everything like that that we're you know we're facing? Whether you think it's cyclical or whether you think it's changing, regardless of what it is, right? We need to feed some motherfuckers on this planet, right? Yeah. And we don't have a very good way to do it right now without glyphosate. And we don't have a whole lot of evidence to suggest that glyphosate is doing uh, ext- an extreme amount of damage to our environment or to the people that live in it, right? In yeah. fact, it's, yeah. helping. I mean- it's helping more than it's hurting. And to your point, Ray, it is assumed risk. It is assumed risk. It is assumed. It is assumed and there are risk. Ways, and there are ways to uh, avoid that if you need to. There are ways to do mm-hmm. that. And what I'm saying right now is that until such time is that we can reinvent the wheel. And yes, are there chemical companies that are standing in the way saying, "Hey, yeah, we'd love to sell you more Roundup." Absolutely. But if you don't think that there's some smart people out there trying to figure out better ways to do it, and you don't think that that day will come, then you're an idiot. And if you don't think that up until that point that we need to use all the tools that we have legally available to us and that the science says works and is safe and is effective, then you two are a moron. It's just literally that simple. It's that simple right now. Yeah. Well said. It, it is that, yeah, well said, because risk and perceived risk and who's responsible for that risk has become a huge problem because as it relates to you know the issue of pesticides for example i can see cases and instances even in this whole roundup debate or glyphosate debate where somebody didn't take responsibility for their risk and then they turn around and say Somebody else is responsible because I, I'll tell you guys right now. If I find out I have cancer tomorrow, do you think I'm going to go around blaming Bear or Dow or Syngenta or whatever? Do you think I would do that? No. No. Even if not at all. And no. And and you know what? I would probably say. Oh, stupid Ray, uh, see what happens when you don't check your gloves for leaks. You know, I would not look to blame somebody else. And because this is, you know, my commentary, my sad commentary on the world as a whole is that everybody is always looking for somebody else to blame. Anything that happens, it's somebody else's fault, be it. Oh, it's Roundup's fault. Oh, it's Donald Trump's fault. Oh, it's the EPA's fault. You know, it's always somebody else's fault. Well, how about just for once, people take responsibility for their own health and safety and stop looking at businesses and governments to take care of their own business? Please coddle my feelings and wipe my ass for me because. Uh, it yeah. 
when I have to wipe yeah. my boo boo. Um, yeah. All right. We're, <laughs> we'll go on here because you know, obviously, this is, we we've still got some other things we got to cover here. Um, the system is at a tipping point. Lord have mercy. We are okay. Utah and this area of the West is really, really bad off when it comes to water and not a little bit, but a lot, a lot really bad off with water. And they're talking about more conservation programs that they're having to put into place because it is a massive, massive issue that is developing over there. Um, That being said, uh, Demay, you have continued to put these up here to keep us kind of uh, uh, on point with this. What the hell do you think is going to start happening out there? Because I don't see any relief coming anytime soon. Same. I mean, I don't know how, uh, at what point you, you know, shut down. It can, can conserve enough water, right. To make it worth it. Um, I followed this loosely, you know, for the last probably, I don't know, four or five years now, just, you know, from, California, especially, you know, they've had their 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 share of challenges, but certainly in the uh, the Colorado Valley, like they've they've got a lot of major problems here. So I think what it's going to come down to is that uh, you know it looks like the federal government's going to take action, which they've always been kind of hesitant to do, at least in large part. And so, uh, you know, what is this? Ten million acre feet of water that they used last year, which is. Uh, Divisional estimates, nearly three times the upper use, upper basin's use when the river was only supplied with three. Ooh, man. So, yeah, so they're 40% short in some cases. I mean, mm-hmm. so it, the, how do you drive down use that much? You know, that's uh, that's a tremendous amount. So I, I don't know if it, if it starts to become something where, you know, you're going to see a lack of development, right, or a slowing of development because, mm-hmm. you know, certain, certain areas mm-hmm. of this uh, – this uh watershed are definitely growing so how do you meet that demand right well you slow down development and hopefully you can curtail what's already there and i don't know fellas this not a good time to be growing grass i can tell you that yeah uh you know they're talking about uh getting rid of uh uh hydropower water so you know again in a in a time where we have unprecedented power on our power grid as well uh, uh, stress on our power grid as well you, you know more power generations coming offline uh with no real uh, easy easy replacement to it so not this is this is no bueno at all um and then this last one i wanted to talk to real quick is the uh there were uh, i don't know somewhere around ten thousand cattle that just uh died relatively quickly uh, out in Kansas. And for those of you that haven't seen this, it's, it's, it's kind of been in some strange places of the internet. And I'm not going to go through just a ton of it here, but just understand that, uh, there was a ton of, of cattle that quickly dropped dead. And you heard a lot of conspiracy theories of people saying that what's people putting pressure again, you know, you look at, there's been, uh, 94 incidences of food processors catching on fire this year, you know, we're June 19th. Uh, that's a lot. And then all of a sudden you've got, you know, the avian flu that's wiping out uh, 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 chickens at unprecedented levels. And now we've got 10,000 head of cattle that's just falling out. It's like, you know, well, is, is, is someone intentionally going after the food supply? But um, there was a, uh, a, a one of the ranchers actually uh, chimed in here and said that uh, 
Uh, in particular, these calves were already fat, um, getting ready for slaughter. And um, it went, there was no gradual increase in temperature. It went from uh, uh, cool to hot with no winds whatsoever, very high heat indexes, higher humidity than what they're accustomed to. So there was no acclimation period. And particularly these fat cattle that are ready for slaughter uh, need longer acclim acclimation periods uh, in order to tolerate the swing in temperature. And, uh, and so because that didn't happen, that's why you had such monumental die-off in a relatively short amount of time. Uh, you know, temperature was 108 degrees. Uh, um, the uh, heat indexes were well into 120, 125 degrees. And um, un unfortunately, in those kinds of conditions, I, there was just nothing. There was no way to escape it, even though they had access to water. Um, it's not a matter of being able to drink water. It's a matter of literally their body temperature getting too hot too quick and them not being able to adjust to it. And so unfortunately hey. that happens and it did a number on the cattle feeder market. Um, and again, where we're already facing monumental inflation, uh, uh, food security issues are creeping up every day. Issues with fertilizer, you know, one more thing to put out there. Now, on the flip side of this, 10,000 cattle sounds like a lot, but in reality, um, you know, to put this into perspective, uh, a few years ago, due to uh, inclement weather, so like tornado outbreaks and stuff, um, I think this was in the last seven years, we lost 156,000 uh, head of cattle over a relatively short period of time. Uh, so 10,000 seems like a lot, but it's not the type of cat, uh, uh, catastrophe and devastation that's going to mean that, you know, we're not. Uh, we're going to run out of beef or something. Well, I mean, I, I can certainly empathize with the ranchers and certainly the cattle. I, I was uh, taken down by the heat this past Thursday. I was I was at a commission. Didn't do uh, our normal Thursday Thursday show. But you know what, guys? You know what's getting me through? Uh, coming up on another hot week that the uh, the cattle just can't do. I've switched from Gold Bond to that uh, that drying agent that they throw out there on the baseball fields after the tarp comes off. And that has made <laughs> all the difference in the world. And I can't wait for that data that comes out of the University of Kentucky to show me more about why that happens. And I hope that <laughs> we, have a, uh, we have a YouTube channel that can explain the why a little bit better on that. And I will definitely supply them all the data. With that, why don't we go ahead and jump over to a mailbag question real quick. You've got mail. Uh, the first one here is from Luis. Luis said, first, thanks uh, for everything you guys do. A uh, huge help for the lawn enthusiast community. Question is, I have 10,000 square feet of Bermuda, uh, and the top test is the soil report for it. What is the best nitrogen source to help spread my Bermuda? I have a lot of bare spots. And two, I already did a lime application of 20 pounds per 1,000 square feet. Uh, Mid-month, should I continue throughout the summer months? Do you have a lime application preference that can help me? Ooh. Any input would be greatly appreciated. Uh, J Pink, do you have the soil test here? Let's see. Let's see what we're looking at. Oh, we have boy. He's down. pH of 4.8. Yikes. Yowza. Uh, yeah, <laughs> I'll give you a recommendation on. Uh, oh, it's centipede. Uh, wait, he said 10,000 square feet of Bermuda, though, didn't he? Yeah, yes, he said 10,000 square feet up here, and then it says centipede down on the front. He's got centipede well, in the front and Bermuda in the back. We'll talk about the Bermuda okay. since that's what he was specifically asking. And uh, there is no nitrogen source that's going to help you in this until you 
work your ass off on getting that pH up because at a, at a soil pH of 4.8, um, you know, your volatilization rate and all that is just going to be astronomically high. So you can continue, you're going to waste more than you apply. And uh, so I would not be applying 20 pounds per thousand square feet of lime per month. Uh, I would be applying uh, 50 pounds per thousand square feet. Um, and uh, probably every other month, if you did that every month, you would, you would likely be caking uh, on the soil surface. Ray, Ryan, yeah, it would look what, like what, it, what are y'all looking at here? It would look like it, it snowed if you pushed it to 50 per month. But then the next piece of this is water. Because without water, lime doesn't do much for you in terms of what it can do. And to be honest with you, at a pH of 4.8, here's what I would do. What I would do is I would plan on dropping down the required amount of lime. And because he has Bermuda, I would rototill that lime in, roll it, flatten it out, start watering. And you know what that would do? That would give him a flat surface with pH-adjusted soil that the Bermuda would rapidly retake from the existing stolons and rhizomes that the tillage just simply chopped up and redistributed. Ray How's just that? went from <laughs> Ray just went from take a baby aspirin every day to you're gonna need a fucking heart transplant. That was uh... yeah. but then when 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 somebody tells me thin turf that's kind of not doing too great anyway and the conditions are this severe yup time to get the bone saw out ryan time to get the bone saw we're, yeah, we're there's spreading nothing some i ribs. like doing than cracking a sternum <laughs> and growing some new bermuda hmm baby yeah. <laughs> hell yeah <laughs> hey if green dog says it it must be true so yeah i guess uh i guess Luis is gonna have to get himself a tiller and a whole fuck pile yeah. of lime. Yeah, yeah. Because here's the thing: is that at a, at a pH that low, it's going to take forever otherwise to spread lime and get your pH up. Versus at that rate, I'd be looking at tilling in up to two hundred pounds of lime per thousand square foot. But that amount of lime got to get tilled in. Think about those those sad sacks of shit at Lowe's or Home Depot that you know are are in charge of loading the bags for you. They're gonna be like, "How many well, bags did you get, sir?" No, oh, I got all the bags. Just go all ahead the bags right here. You know, no, you know what Luis right actually needs to do is get in get in contact with his local farmer good. farmers co op and say, "Hi guys, I'm gonna need a Don't couple pallets." No, I'm just going to need a couple pallets. Truck. Drop, right drop, the drop a couple pallets. Yeah, right, uh, right on my driveway because uh, I'm going to be spreading that much lime. I mean, pH four point something. Yikes! <laughs> it's heavy. It's All right. <laughs> do we want to do one more? Uh, or, or, or? Yeah, yeah. Here, here. We'll we'll we'll, we'll jump into we'll one more here. Let one. me. Uh, let me open this up. This is Eric's here. He said uh, he's got a two-parter here, and he does not think this is unique to him. 
Uh, first, he said, and, and I, I like this here. Um, oh, to demay this, this, I feel like I'm going to the doctor asking to get in shape, but not willing to stop smoking or exercise. Uh, first question is guilty, Eric. Is that you know he's got sixty thousand square feet of lawn and pays for water by the gallon, so irrigation is out for the time being. Um, so is there, do you have any cultural practice advice to give him, uh, knowing that he cannot feasibly water his 60,000 square feet? Wedding agents would be about the only thing. Get yourself you some soak I, you or, or, and I'd say mm-hmm. stop mowing. Right. Yeah. You know what I'd also <laughs> say? Yeah. If you can't water, don't fertilize either because yeah, the, 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 the nitrogen is going to drive up water demand in grass. I mean, if you can't water, this is a situation where your turf area is going to have to go into what I call extremely low input mode. Less water, uh, less fertilizer, less mowing. I mean, that, that's just where you're at. Yeah. Are you ready for this? Mm-hmm. I don't think he needs to not fertilize i think homeboy needs to use the correct source so if you are going to fertilize and you're in st louis and you're taking a little bit of a risk here i'll be honest with you if it gets real hot and wet at the same time but if you do need to fertilize look at methylene urea because it will only release when you get enough moisture in there a little bit of temperature right to keep you going give you a bump get you a little bump every time you get some rainfall and keep you growing green. So you only have to do it one time because let's be honest, nobody probably wants to go out there and fertilize uh, 60,000 square feet every six weeks because some dumbass app told you to. So keep that in mind. Here's the second part of the question. He said it's linked to the high to cut. I feel like there's two polar camps to set your mower as high as it goes and the camp of people don't want to see how low they can get it. Uh, damn polarized world we live in. I want to be in the middle with two to three inch grass that is playable for toddlers for kickball, catch, and general running around. Uh, I know that will come at the cost of weed pressure and heat stress, but cannot find any good advice on how to manage playable grass without irrigation. Mow it at three. You may get the simple answer. Mow it at three inches and be done with it. Don't set, don't move your mower deck mm-hmm. up, down, do any of that bullshit. Just set it at three inches. Leave it there the entire year. Everything will be fine. Easy enough. Yeah. Yeah. I would second says, that. I'd say don't try to mow lower. And he says, again, I know in my situation, I cannot expect anything but dormant grass in August, but still looking for advice. As of now, I've just been mowing as often as I can at three inches to keep the grass in shape. Um, again, if you're going through record drought periods and stuff, there's no reason to cut grass that's already drought stressed. You know, typically it's not growing, so uh, there's no real reason to run a mower across it. Um, uh, so, you know, it, mowing it as often as you can while it needs it. If it doesn't need it, then, you know, I, the, the whole Stop. concept of charity yeah. mowing dormant grass is a little bit silly at that point. Um, and then he also sent in a soil test here that we can take Ooh. a look at. Uh, he is exceptionally low in phosphorus and uh, exceptionally low in uh, sulfur as well. And so I would say back to DeMay's point on methylene urea, uh, MESA, which is a hom- uh, hom- homogeneous methylene urea ammonium sulfate would be a good for you there wait i didn't see a soil ph though what is it uh six six yeah he can get away with it and uh mm-hmm. i think i think that would actually yeah, six, be six six is really not low six product. six is not bad i mean actually 
the only other thing that I'd be looking at is he might be a use case for a little bit of gypsum to bump up his calcium and his sulfur levels as well. Yep, that's another way you could do that as well. Yeah, because um, uh, it's all about feeding what is low. I mean, that's that's all I can say it, about that. It is, and you can, and you know, you would probably, even though you're only at 14 parts per million of uh, phosphorus, you know, when it comes time to overseed this fall, you know, use a quote unquote starter fertilizer that's going to be higher in phosphorus, and you get down a season's worth in a single application, and you'll be you'll be good. Uh, moving on to this week's Burns. Uh, a settlement. Man, guys, did y'all hear about what happened in the UK? There was, and, and, and look, this is not this is not green industry related, but there is. Uh, <laughs> Are you some, sure? Yeah. So, the United Kingdom 16 Air Assault Brigade uh, was under investigation over them making whoopee with a civilian woman who had been snuck into their barracks. Um, <laughs> and there was eight of them of the of the dudes on video with Sheila and Sheila had made 31 visits over the last five months. Oh boy. Uh, Sheila was oh boy. partying her rear end off. Living her best uh-huh. life, was she? Um that's a lot of tallywhacker. That's, that is that is uh going hard in the paint as they say uh scott's turf builder easy seed class action lawsuit settlement uh so scott's is a turf builder easy seed that grows grass quote unquote 50 percent thicker with half the water uh, however what happened is is that they put this to test right because it contains seed uh, and a mulch um and and fertilizer kind of all in one combination product here but what they found out was that it didn't work the super absorbent mulch uh competes with the germinating seed for available moisture therefore the mulch is absorbing the moisture and is preventing the seed from absorbing the moisture and therefore preventing the seed from germinating and so even though they were making these claims uh it turns out they were pretty much all wrong uh, and they were not able to replicate any of the uh, of the of the claims that were put out there by Scotts. And so Scott said, well, instead of litigating this over a long period of time, even though we don't agree with it, what we're going to do is we're going to refund people. that have heard of this. So, um, yep. Sorry, Scotts. Y'all, uh, you know, it, it happens. And I think the whole reason why I think it's important to talk about is that there's um, a, a, a lot of these things that you add to absorb water, uh, remember that at a lot of the rates that we may be using these things, say, especially at low rates, like two, three pounds per thousand, um, your, your density per square foot of these types of products is potentially low. Therefore, while it may absorb water, it may not absorb water within close enough contact to something that can actually take advantage of the water being there. Right. So in this particular instance, the mulch is absorbing the water, but the grass can't take advantage of it. A lot of that probably has to do with density per square foot that is actually out. 
Um, and then the real one here that I wanted to get in here, uh, and Demay, again, uh, I'm really going to lean on you to talk me off uh, a ledge here. <laughs> um, the USDA announces a dramatic increase in support for organic agriculture without the tall for total uh, transition. Uh, the U.S. The USDA announced on June 1st that it will provide a potential 15-fold increase in fu- in funding aimed at organic food production, up to a $300 million investment. Uh, the subject organic transition initiative provision is embedded in a new USDA food system transformation framework, uh, whose raison d'être is captured in the press release to transform the food system to benefit consumers, producers, and rural communities by providing more options, increasing access and creating new, more, and better markets for small and mid-sized producers. That funding for organic transition, the, in, uh, the invocation of climate as a significant driver of multiple features of the initiative, and a focus on equity concerns are all welcome news. Uh, Beyond Pesticides maintains that it will be critical that this FSTF, resulting concrete goals that set out specific metric timeline, uh, particularly around the magnitude of acres shifted towards organic production and the, pay, the pace of phase out of non-organic substances and protocols, blah, 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 blah. And it goes on to talk about it. And there's a, this is actually a really long article here. And the further you read into it, the more it just it gets a little weird, I feel like. And the part I want to highlight about this is that, and, you know, I'm not an anti-organic guy um, at all, but I think this narrative that and and there's there's certain statements in this that absolutely freak me out and it's these statements um that say uh, you know particularly around the magnitude of acres shifted to organic production and the pace of phase out of non-organic substances and protocols again this is demonizing conventional agriculture this is demonizing the agricultural systems that are capable of feeding the planet. What this is not talking about is how this $300 million investment is not going to increase food security. If anything, this is going to have a larger impact on the number of food acres required to grow food, the the number of acres. Okay, so we have a larger land acreage that's being used to cultivate food. That is potentially more acres that are going to have to sit fallow or out of rotation for periods of time, and the amount of labor that's going to be required to take over these land acres and manage them to organic standards, right? So unfortunately, unfortunately, the environmental impact of this $300 million investment here is largely against the intent of it, which the intent, I assume, somewhere in here is going to be the environmental impact that we're going to have because we're using less of this and less of that and all that fun stuff. But here's the thing. And gentlemen, correct me if I'm wrong, but I was pulling statistics over the millions of pounds of active ingredients that are applied. Uh, And this is either going to be synthetic crop applied pesticides or organic pesticides. And I'm not going to argue that there are plenty of organic pesticides that are essentially non-toxic. And I don't think anybody's going to argue Uh, because they very well know that there's also organic pesticides that are toxic, whether that be slightly or highly toxic or moderately toxic, right? However, the millions of pounds that are applied, there are significantly greater millions of pounds 
of organic pesticides applied than synthetic crop applied pesticides. In an effort to do better, are we really doing better? No. No, not at all. And here's what can be classified as a quote-unquote organic pesticide. Neem oil, for example. And do you know what application rate for neem oil is, for example? Hi. We are talking about... Yeah, we're talking about, for example, can you imagine applying actual amount, the equivalent of at least two to four gallons of neem oil per acre, per application? And in order for neem oil to work, you're also looking at an application rate or an application frequency of as often as every seven days. Can somebody please explain to me what the benefit is of having to go spray a field every seven days? I don't care what it is, be it organic or, or synthetic, when I, I consider the environmental impact of an agronomic practice also in terms of how much energy is needed to implement that agronomic practice that always figures in when I want to make a judgment as to whether an agronomic practice is environmentally beneficial or environmentally harmful. I always take that into consideration. And when I I do that, think about it. If you're pulling a tractor across a field every seven weeks, I mean, every seven days, I mean, what is your fuel mm -hmm. consumption there? Yeah, what if is we're your, trying what to is reduce fuel, fuel consu- consumption and we're trying to increase our, our precision metrics to decrease fuel consumption across across our green acres, you know, it doesn't make sense to go this route. Yeah, it, it makes little sense. And then conversely, Matt, do you know what one of the more toxic pesticides used in organic production is right now? Copper sulfate. Copper. Yeah, copper sulfate-based compounds. And here's my little misgiving about using a lot of copper in a field. When you do that, you can actually build up toxic amounts of copper in the soil because here's the problem with doing copper as a fungicide or, or, or you know, bactericide. Copper is only effective as long as that copper application has formed a film over the surfaces of interest. So you know when a plant grows, you need to apply more copper. And do you know how often you have to reapply that copper in order to maintain adequate film coverage on a plant, especially a rapidly growing crop? Every seven days? Yeah. Here we go again. Here we go again. <laughs> now, and, and, I'll, and I'll say this, that there is there is a certain amount of this that is uh, the $300 million that's set aside for uh, urban agriculture projects and to uh, educate communities about farming and expand green spaces. And I think that piece of it is incredibly important. I think more people need to understand how to grow food and what is required mm-hmm. to grow food. I think that level of education is 
immensely important. So I don't want to shit on this and say it's 100% bad. However, that piece being good, the part that freaks me out is when we start leveraging this language of how can we quickly phase out non-organic substances and protocols when we see historically what that leads to. <laughs> to me, I'm trying. I'm trying to be. I'm trying to be here and there, right? Am I? Am, are, are these fair points, or am I? Am I? Am I getting a little too ultra Maggie over here? <laughs> uh, no, I think uh, I had to say it again. I'm smiling. I know. By the way. It was a joke. I know. People can't see my face if they're listening. It was. It was a joke. Well, but this is. You know, you make a point. This is an issue that people would. Uh, again, try to drive a wedge and say you're on one side or the other because of where you stand on this particular issue. And again, I I, I try to look at it uh, as objectively as I possibly can in all facets. And so, you know, when you look at this and what they're trying to do, um, uh, the 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 good parts of it, right? So there's like forty million dollars in there for outreach and education for what you just talked about, Matt, for people to learn how to grow their own food. Right for community yes. gardens and things like that that at that level right at the household level can work right can be you know fairly uh i guess rewarding in both in terms of the time spent the knowledge gained you know as far uh, the investment there right of that knowledge and then uh seeing results year over year so you hope to see some stuff like that i think um again Considering how we phase all this out, it's not just like, you know, shutting off a spigot necessarily. Uh, how do we, do we have enough arable acres, right, to farm and produce this? So I think in the article they call for the EU, I think what they want the EU to do is convert over 25% of their arable land, right, uh, to organic production by the year 2030, I believe it was. So, mm -hmm. you know, if, if we did that here, what is the impact? And what are we actually growing? And are we growing what is both financially feasible, number one, and notwithstanding the fact that, you know, part of this money, which is crazy to think about, but I think it was $60 million or more, was actually earmarked. So 20% of the money here was earmarked to um, catch up with a backlog of organic farming uh, applications, right, from 2018, so from four years ago. That's how backed up they are. So again, is the infrastructure, the internal infrastructure within the government even in place, not even to oversee this, but let alone just say, hey, yeah, you can go ahead and get started. That's the concerning part. Is And, you know, it cuts both ways, right? You know, what kind of oversight are we seeing at, you know, on the conventional ag side, right? We're trusting that farmers, you know, are doing the right thing. I think in the vast majority of cases, they are. Are there going to be some shitbags out there? Yeah, definitely. Yes. Yeah. And 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 so here's the thing: is uh, it's good to see that they're dipping their toe in the water. I think you know there should be some goals, right, uh, in terms of a deadline and something that's measurable. Hey, we converted whatever you know percentage of the land over to organic farming. Now, on the output side, do we still get the same thing? Do we still get what we need in terms of food production, forage production, crop production, all these things, right, that we need to make our system go? And, it, you know, it uh, talks about it a little bit yeah. in there. But, Ray, mm -hmm. they're coming after your meat, too. The, 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 uh, yeah, that, that the, is, you the, see, 
because here's my here's my little question Uh-oh. about all of this emphasis on agricultural production because I know of some foodstuffs that require minimal chemical inputs. And do you guys know what those foodstuffs are? Tell me. Lamb and beef. Especially if it's grazed on natural grasslands. Now, this whole push for organic production the other facet to this push towards organic production is there's an agenda to make the majority of everybody's diet plant-based that is the other facet of this and i take issue with that because i know personally i cannot exist on plant-based i mean I need my carbs, but at the end of the day, I need natural animal-based proteins and that uh, it's, not, it's not a burger thing or whatever they're touting as a, a beef substitute ain't going to cut it for me. So, you know, this whole thing about getting people to see food growing, I think that's a good thing. I have no problems with that because I think that a lot of people need to become connected with how food is actually produced. And yep. when, they, when, they ha- when they see that for themselves in real time, I think a lot of these people will have an appreciation I, I think they're going to, and, and you know what? The first time they see their tomatoes or their lettuce chewed up and decimated, I'm thinking that some of these people at least will start to think hard when the extremists go after the pesticides uh, like how they have been. I mean, I think that's going to change some minds because I know for myself when I saw the caterpillars and the beetles move in that kind of uh, adjusted my perception on uh, the role of pesticides too because my god they're eating my food (laughs) you know know? especially in in urban environments you know you don't you're so detached from from food production, right? And so exposing mm-hmm. these people to it and, and you know, the very definition of the word sweat equity, uh, I think applies to growing food more so than anything else in the entire world. And, uh, and developing that sweat equity and the amount of uh, loyalty and appreciation and uh, uh, almost a type of, of honor code that goes along with sweat equity um, you know, exposing people to that, especially young people to that in urban environments is, uh, is critically important for the future of, uh, mankind, uh, not just food production, but mankind in general. So, um, there's pieces of this that are good. Again, it's the language thing of, of let's, how do we phase this out as quickly as possible that we're overlooking the reality of situations like Sri Lanka 
that we could talk about and point at since it's the most recent example of how that would be a bad thing. Or if we just think about that, if we allocated 25% of our land acres and installed organic crop production there, knowing that we're going to be between a 30 and 40% yield decrease, um, then, then what does what does, you know, uh, uh, only 70% output on 25% of our land acres actually look like in terms of food security? And that is also a frightening number as well. So um, you see, especially you see, that is my, with the situation we're in right now. That, that's my next question, Matt, because I'm, I want to know, okay, how do we maintain levels of food production, right? And still make it economically feasible because I have yet to see something advertised as organic that costs less than non-organically produced food. I have yet to see it happen. And my question is, if we go all organic, does this then also go back to what I keep on bringing up about population management? Yeah. Okay. I don't know. I mean, and I, I mean, and is, I, is, are, are, because by default, what's implied is food will be organic from now on, but. That also means that it's for whoever can afford to pay for it. The food is only for people uh, who can afford to pay for it. <laughs> let's tap into a couple more mailbags. You've yeah. got mail. Uh, Beeman said, using the Subvert application planner, I have fescue set at 0.75 pounds every month, a Bermuda one pound event per month. How would you alter the numbers for Zorgia and centipede? I know centipede is a tough animal, Oof. but it's here. How high over the recommended potassium numbers would you go of trying to raise the K levels to 100 parts per million? Um, all right, this is kind of a lot to unpack here. First, I do not know what the nutrient removal rate of centipede is, uh, and I don't know what it is for zoysia either. Um, and I think a uh, lot of that is going to come down to zoysia cultivars, uh, mm-hmm. probably going to be a little bit more extreme in removal rates than compared to most Bermudas. You do see some variabilities in Bermuda too, right? So, a TIF grand removal rate is not going to be the same as like a celebration. Um, you know, and uh, there was another one, Patriot, I think is one of those that the removal rate on Patriot was uh, almost a one-to-one in decay. Um, so there's a lot of variability. Ray, off the top of your head, do you know what the removal rate of Zorge is? Is it going to be different between Matrella and, and Japonica? I don't know. Actually, uh, it all depends on how much clippings are generated by that zoysia and whether those clippings are removed or not because uh the uh, earlier this month i related that unfortunate experience where i came to a lawn that had all of its clippings removed every week for the past six months and i actually saw the grass running out of nitrogen phosphorus potassium and micronutrients because of that clipping removal. So it all depends on your cultural practices, but in cases where somebody is not removing clippings, 
zoysia actually does not remove very much from the soil, provided the clippings are returned 100%. And likewise, centipede also has a fairly low nutrient removal rate, if that helps answer the question. Yep. So, uh, Beeman, I, you know, uh, again, I would, they're, they're not apples to apples, so it would not be applicable to, to, to use that general 412 removal rate as uh, the same for uh, zoysia and centipede. Uh, here's the, the other answer? thing. What's that? Till, till it no, up. No fucking idea. Just, <laughs> till it up, just play for me, though. Yeah, yeah. Go on. I mean, sorry, that, that would be. Okay, one. Ryan, actually. For me, the use case for centipede would generally be in low pH, low phosphorus soils where centipede and even zoysia struggles. Because likewise, I've seen... Piedmont region of North Carolina. Yeah. And because likewise, I've seen instances where somebody decides to be avant-garde and installs zoysia on pH five soils, and uh, that's boy, howdy, artisan, Ray, that's artisan zoysia. Yeah, and boy, howdy, I then get the phone call about why is my zoysia thinning out? It looks really lime green, and it's you know not healthy. And I I draw the soil test mat, pH five soil, and you know what my other clue is. Every other house in that neighborhood has centipede, and that centipede yeah. doesn't get doesn't get fertilizer, doesn't get lime. All people do there in that neighborhood is cut the damn grass. But this one person wants to be special, and has zoysia. Well, <laughs> sometimes that's me. Uh, here, we'll yeah. do one more uh, mailbag here. This is from uh, Greg Maggio. He said, uh, is it possible you can tell me what weed this is and how to control it? Uh, what we have mm -hmm. here is when I see the shiny leaves like that, that tells me that is bull pass power. Yikes. If I'm <laughs> identifying that correctly, I believe those shiny leaves are bull pass power. And uh, mm -hmm. past balance varieties. What are, what are you? What are you dipping into, Ray? You're going sulfonylureas. Absolutely, I am going full on SU, and of course, it depends on what kind of grass you need to selectively remove this bull past balum from. Because yes, typically where I'm seeing this is going to be in a Bermuda, and I see okay. what looks like some Bermuda runners in the background. Okay, because. If you got to remove this from Bermuda, you're in good luck because your best friends become Monument, Revolver, mm -hmm. uh, Celsius. And if you want to get spicy, you do like a, what works well for me is, for example, a Celsius and Monument combination or a Revolver and Celsius combination. And you just or you can do a tribute it. total. Or you can do a tribute total if you want to keep it simple. And mm -hmm. the only caveat to using tribute total is in that tribute total application, you're going to be applying halosulfuron. 
And you think now, do you need halosulfurone somewhere in your program for controlling purple nutsedge? Because mm. if you really need your halosulfurone, I would think hard about blowing it on a combination product going after grassy weeds. My preference would be to always hold back my halosulfurone so that I can address a nutsedge emergence without go going over the label. Because my understanding is, is that even halosulfurone, you are capped at so many applications per year and so much AI per year. Um, I forgot. There was one thing I left out about uh, um, Patrick Beeman's question there. Uh, okay, so 100 pounds of K2O per acre will raise uh, soil potassium by 41.5 parts per million. 100 pounds mm -hmm. of K2O per acre is 41.5 parts per million. So uh, anyway, there, there's, the, there's the simple math there. All right, uh, let's check out this week's return. Westfield teen, if I recall correctly, Westfield is uh is that up in Ohio? There's a Westfield. You know who's uh you know who lives real close to Westfield? And I by real close I mean he could probably stand in his front lawn and pee into Westfield. Is our is good that, friend. Is that Jimmy, Jimmy Beveridge? No, Pat Kelly. Pat Kelly? The rowing redhead Chill himself. Out. Chill yes. out, he said. The rowing the audiologist. Calm down. The, the audiologist. Uh, the Jack audiologist. <laughs> so let's, well, let, let, let's see what we got going on here. What's going yeah, on he's got he's got a new uh, uh, businessman in town, and it is Jonah Papacek. He started his own lawn care business after several years of cutting his family's grass and observing professional lawn care. The 13-year-old Westfield resident launched Jonah's Lawn Service in 2021 and brought in about $2,000 in profits. At the end of the season, he expects his profits to be around four to five k. I just like being able to go outside and see that I make something look good. I feel like I have a lot of freedom when I do it. Jonah is the sole proprietor of Jonah's Lawn Service, a Westfield neighborhood business that offers mowing, trimming, edging, and most recently, mulching. Jonah's parents, Michelle and Jason Popcheck, said their son applies his knack for art and design to his lawn business. He designed multiple flyers advertising his service, and he created a logo that he now wears on a t-shirt, which features a car caricature-style drawing of himself on a tractor and a rainbow lettering spelled out, Jonah's Lawn Service. I had my first shirt before I had any customers. Now he's got 10 or 11 yards and works up to around 30 hours a week. When he enters eighth grade in the fall, he said he might have to work more on the weekends to keep up with his customers. <laughs> uh, Mama Bear says she's proud of her son's ability to excel in school and operate his business at the same time. I'm just floored by the determination, the motivation. I'm not sure how he handles juggling everything. Jason Papacek said his son's business has been beneficial not only to Jonah, but also to the family. The Papacheks moved to a different house at the beginning of the pandemic. Jonah's lawn service helped introduce and acquaint them to new neighbors. As restrictions started to lift, we found ourselves introducing ourselves instead of who we were, more as we're Jonah's parents, he said. Everybody knows Jonah from his lawn care business. Jonah continues to improve his lawn services and techniques by watching YouTube channels that specialize in lawn care and upgrading his equipment. Good Lord, I hope he doesn't watch us. 
His next goal is to purchase a commercial-grade mower. The tractor I have now, it does a good job. It's not a large commercial piece of equipment that can stripe a lawn like a golf course. In the future, I'd like to get one of those so I can really make people's yards look good. Jonah said as he genuinely enjoys lawn care and wants to grow his business through high school and beyond. Plan on doing it as long as I can do it, pretty much until I retire. Kudos to young man here out hey. there getting the damn thing done. Now, listen, there, there is something I, I need to correct here because uh, this guy right. is not Pat Kelly's neighbor. This is uh, Westfield, Indiana. Oh, and the one man. thing that we can say about Westfield, Indiana, and just the state of Indiana in general, is if you live there, there seems to be this thing going around where you have a, uh, you design a logo and put it on a green shirt before you ever have any sort of tangible business or reason to do so. <laughs> But Joan has actually done something. He wasn't, you know, just featured on the local news and Engine puts out uh, SF Gate articles. This dude is out here getting it done like a man who's 40, but he's actually like 13 or 14, whatever. So look at this. Look at this bastard. He. Dang. I was was this kid once. I was this kid once, but I didn't have a tracker. I wasn't that cool. It was all steady lots I mode. When I was a youth like that. Hey, Jonah, I'll gladly give up 10 people on YouTube lawn care for you to take their place. How about them apples? <laughs> um, because yes. I'm sure the value that you put out is probably 10 times more effective than, uh, than, than 10 of their. You know what? Content. This, this, this just gave me a great idea. We should, I, you could call it like fantasy football or something like that, but you know, we should run a YouTube lawn care league in which we rank wins and losses. And maybe this will start with Joe knows turf, which we're going to get to here in just a second, rank wins and losses. And then guess what fellas, if you are in the bottom two or something like that, like, you know what they do in Mm -hmm. uh, European football, you get relegated and your ass has to go down to Vimeo, right? To do all your shit. I think that's what we should do. (laughs) YouTube lawn care league. It's going to happen. We're going to figure out how to do this in 2023. I can't wait. And yeah, go down there to Vimeo with all the, the weirdos. You might as well be on Tumblr before they took all the bad stuff off there. Well, in, in lieu of, of what Jonah has uh, been able to bring uh, some joy to our, 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 uh, our lives, uh, let's show Jonah what he should avoid when he's carousing the YouTube lawn care space and go ahead and highlight this week's Jonah's Turf. <laughs> Joe knows turf. Yes, he does. Hi, <laughs> I'm Joe. I'm gonna give you a bunch of accurate turf facts today because Joe knows turf. <laughs> All right. So this week, Demay has put up a uh, has has found something that's absolutely this. fascinating here. I was sent. Talk to us about it. Well, all right. <laughs> Uh, I I think it's any any time it's natural. You know the uh, the big fish in the pond is going to be the the biggest target, right? And uh, today the video that we're going to watch is maybe a little bit of that. I think there's uh, I I can't say because I haven't watched the video, but uh, the title has some undertones of jealousy, envy, right? <laughs> Maybe even uh, a little bit of uh, David versus Goliath, if I should say so much. But uh, <laughs> let's go ahead and watch and see 
what happens here and try to unpack what's going on with the claim about one fertilizer being better than another fertilizer. Because, fellas, if there's anything that we want to do on the last part of Father's Day here, it's to get in a prick-waving contest with the fertilizer bags. Guys, this is Brian with Turb Mechanic. Today is June 4th, and while I still have temperate spring weather, I'm going to be making some summer applications to my lawn, things that I'm putting down at the end of spring to get me through the heat and stresses that come with summer. Now, earlier this season, I don't know, maybe at the end of winter, first part of spring, I loaded up my Yard Mastery shopping cart with Yard Mastery's summer stress blend with the plan of putting it down around this time of the year. I've been planning this for a long time, but I hesitated and ultimately I decided to not pull the trigger. It's just not my style to put down all-in-one products. I like piecing things together exactly the way that my lawn needs it at that given time. Not only did I think that I could do better than applying the stress blend that Yard Mastery offers, but I also don't particularly care for putting down manufactured products in my lawn. I would much rather put down the most organic, the most naturally sourced products I possibly could, the most naturally sourced inputs that I possibly could on my lawn. Now, the Yard Mastery stress blend, uh, we all call it summer stress blend because that's really the best time to put it down. But uh, the stress blend is a 7020 with micronutrients and iron. That makes perfect sense to be putting down going into summer for cool season grasses. It also really makes a lot of sense to put down towards the end of summer for warm season grasses, but that's a whole nother point. Now, although on, the urea, which is the base new. Uh, first off, no, that is not necessarily what needs to go down. Uh, if you have been in a situation where you're only applying potassium and you're in uh, uh, and you are deficient in potassium, I'm sorry, where you've only been applying nitrogen and you're deficient in potassium and you're trying to rate quickly raise your soil K levels, then it makes sense to do it. Uh, but again, what you're doing is loading the soil with K and then it becomes subject to leaching and all that fun stuff. And, um, you know, in mass lawn care situation, what I call volume lawn care, sometimes you have to do that. Uh, in particularly in homeowner type situations, you don't necessarily have to do that because you have the flexibility of doing more frequent applications and you can choose a little bit more applicable uh, ratios to avoid you from running into a situation where you have to load it all at one time. Um, or in many cases, sometimes that we see that, you know, we've looked at how many soil tests over here that sometimes you're cruising at 200 parts per million of potassium and applying a 7020 at any point of the year when you have 200 parts per million of potassium is going to do absolutely nothing for you, whether you have stress there or not. It just does, is not going to do anything for you for stress. So let's go ahead and get that out of the play, uh, uh, that, that on the plate, and so we can continue watching the rest of this. Nutrient for nitrogen in the stress blend is polymer coated, which makes it a lot slower acting than uh, some non-coated versions of urea. The potassium aspect of the stress blend is a mixture of SOP and MOP. MOP is the, uh, the non-organic form um, of potash. Uh, SOP, I would prefer to put down all by itself because that is OMRI listed. It is listed for organic use. Now the stress blend also comes Hang with on. a whole bunch of micronutrients. Let's pause it there. Oh. I, and this is where the whole organic thing gets real, real weird because both KCL and uh, SOP are, are uh, 
uh, mined products, right? One has to go through a washing step, uh, and the other one doesn't. Um, I don't know why you couldn't label KCL, uh, probably because of that washing step, you couldn't uh, label it Omri. In reality, when you're choosing between the two, the only reason that you would really look at one versus the other, in my opinion, would be the chlorine content that you may or may not need and the salt index of the product. Uh, and so, but this this idea that one is going to be safer or whatever because of the Omri listing on it, that's not factual. What would make it a quote-unquote safer product would be the fact that um, uh, SOP has a, a lower solubility, uh, 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 less of it can go into solution uh, over a given volume of water as KCL, and then also the salt index of KCL is going to be significantly higher than, than SOPs. One is less soluble, meaning oh, wow. uh, you know you have uh, less less potential for runoff and leaching and all that fun stuff, while the other one is is uh, a lot less salty. And in fact, Demay, is it? Can we? do the picture right now just to show no an no 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 okay no. Uh, okay okay uh if we if we if we crop it down crop it down so we can get rid of the the background there jay pink and just show the grass oh, yeah let, let me let here i can i can crop that while you're quick, doing that think, while you're doing that while you're doing that i i want to share this real quick uh okay. related to potassium and I'll, I'll i'll speak on this for a moment is that this idea that uh oh you gotta have to there look at that that's you know, uh, potassium is influencing stress, right, uh, and stress response. So before we get into the physiology piece, let's just take it out of the big picture, right? Okay, so this is a study from 2018, a uh, person from uh, Oregon State, right? Yeah. No. I'll send the link here. It's from Korea. Okay, so the study is entitled... Potassium rate and mowing height for Kentucky bluegrass growth, right? So they're looking at those two factors. So what they find here, right, is that once you get above 28.5 C, which is about 83 degrees Fahrenheit, there's really no influence whatsoever on potassium relative to uh, growth or health of the turf, okay? So if you read further down here, when air temperature is optimal with a high mowing height, uh, of more than 100 millimeters, and the low K rate is needed for growth of, uh, growth of the root length, right? So essentially what they're saying here is that, again, the plant response that you get from uh, higher rates of potassium and higher temperature is pretty much null and void. What's going to get into the plant is going to get into the plant through mass flow, right, in which you need water for that to actually take place, right? And if you Whoa. don't have water, if you're in a... I know. Mm-hmm. So, Ray, real quick... Talk about mass flow and how potassium enters the plant. Okay. Potassium follows water, right? And so if you have water, the potassium dissolves in that water and the plant roots take up that water. However, here's the caveat. Do you know why I always harp about salt indexes? And chlorides, mm-hmm. it is because under conditions of water stress and heat stress, here's what happens to grass that is under extreme heat stress. Mm-hmm. That grass is actually not able to take up water. Mm-hmm. Okay? It's not able to take up water. But whatever salts 
you happen to have applied, then pool and concentrate in the soil. So what'll happen is you then have your grass sitting in a condition of very high salts. Now, potassium, specifically potassium chloride, can become extremely harmful, especially to cool season grasses that are under conditions of heat and drought stress. And that is all entirely due to its uh, you know, issue with salt index combined with that pooling of salt at the roots. Go ahead and throw that up the, real quick, J-Pink. Yeah. Oh, sorry. No, no, no. No, this is great right here. Oh, this is uh, good. This is... So here we've got listed Matt, out Matt, individual salt, salt indexes index. here. Basically, this is a chart of, of what's going to tell you that the higher the salt index, the higher the likelihood of you to induce quote unquote fertilizer burn, right? Um, and I, man, I wish there was one on here that, that's on the other one, and that's potassium thiosulfate, uh, because oh, I yeah. see the nutrient, uh, and I'm I'm going to call nutrient out here, nutrient turf guys pushing potassium thiosulfate onto uh onto lawn care guys and mm -hmm. if you think potassium chloride has a high potential for fertilizer burn potassium thiosulfate get ready to set your ass on fire because uh again another one with a with a, a relatively high salt index there so just be careful um so anyway yes this is in, in effect the likely uh, how likely it is the higher the number the the, the greater the probability of you in, inducing fertilizer burn how about that? All right, let's let's skip back to the video here real quick, and let's skip ahead and see what's going to be implied that is better than. Keep going back a little bit. Keep going back a little bit. Oh man. Vent. Uh, diseases and uh, resist drought and heat stress that we're going to get at some point in the months of June, July, and August. I'd also really like to get some soil build. I always try to get soil building uh, inputs into my lawn whenever I'm making applications. So what I'm going to be doing is I'm going to be applying two granular products, both from the same company, Lawnbox. I'm going to be putting down Lawn Lux mm. and their soil building product, Soil Saver. I'm also going to be adding in a liquid micronutrient application from Simple Grow Solutions. It's their micro booster. This is basically gonna give me N and K with a whole bunch of humic acid, some other soil building ingredients in the soil saver box, calcium, and then a good number of micronutrients in that liquid micro booster product. All of those micros are uh, chelated, they're chelated, ch chelated, chelated, chelated. I don't know how to pronounce it. They're all readily available for the plant, as opposed to uh, the micronutrients that are in the stress blend that we mentioned earlier in this video. In the Lawn Lux product, the nitrogen is being sourced from soybean meal. The potassium is being sourced from OMRI-listed potassium sulfate. And the product comes with a bit of sulfur and 5% humic acid. The Soil Saver product comes with a lot of extra humic acid and a good number of extra miscellaneous soil building ingredients. I get calcium in the soil saver product, and then all of the other minor nutrients, including iron, 
are going to be coming in from the Micro Booster product. Everything that I'm going to be putting down today is going to be plant available pretty much right away. The humic acid is going to take some time to incorporate into the soil, but that's not really going to push me through the summer. That's just I'm getting it along with all of the stuff that I actually want. And then all of the azomite that I've applied to the lawn like over the past couple years or so is slowly incorporating in and becoming available year after year after year. It's the long play, like I said. Now, I also understand that not everybody likes applying, likes applying liquid fertilizers or liquid applications to the lawn. Spraying is just a little bit more complicated than applying granular products to the lawn, even though you've got a little bit more versatility with the liquids. If I was going to go with a granular minor, minor product as opposed to the Simple Grow Solutions liquid version, I'd probably go for the Simple Ag Essential Miners uh, granular product. Uh, okay, sometimes fine. it's available on Do My Own. Uh, so, Matt, I think really uh, what we need here is, you know, you're, if you're Joe on the street, our Joe too, right? So Joe. it takes a little, yeah, it, it, it takes a little bit of thinking when you're looking at some bags to, to get an idea. Go ahead, J-Pink, and throw up that Lawn Lux label. That, uh, that he talked about there. And Matt, just do uh, our Joe Knows Turf version of label reading here. What are we looking at? And is this all going to be plant available as soon as it hits the ground, as Brian said? Uh, no. So if we look under total nitrogen here, we have our nitrate nitrogen. We have our water-insoluble nitrogen and our other water-soluble nitrogen. What we can deduce based on the derived from statement where I have two uh, things highlighted here is that our water insoluble nitrogen and our other water soluble nitrogen is derived from soybean meal. Soybean meal typically has an analysis of a 712. So if we have roughly four and what is that? Four and a half percent nitrogen from it. So that gives us Oh, 60% of this product is relatively not available at all once it goes down. What is available when it goes down would be the two and three quarter uh, nitrate nitrogen. Um, and that would be derived from sodium nitrate. And sodium nitrate got glossed over there and is an important piece of this because, um, I, you know, hey, it's organic. Uh, Chilean, Chile, what, is, what is it called? Chilean nitrogen is the old, uh, is the old name for it, I believe. Um, Ch Ch uh, Chilean nitrate, and uh, yeah. here's the thing: I would be very remiss to ever apply something to soil that has sodium in it. Yeah, why it, are we not out applying sodium to soil, Ray? Yeah, it's because I believe that when you get above. 75 parts per million of sodium, you got problems, especially if you are talking about growing a cool season grass besides seaside bent grass. If we're talking about growing turf type tall fescue or Kentucky bluegrass, all those grasses are on a low sodium diet mandatory. They do not do well with salt at all. And when I say salt, I'm specifically referring to sodium. So, uh, old boy over here is essentially 
giving his grass a dose of salt, whether he knows it or not. <laughs> yeah. So again, and to to bring all this back together, that when it when we are talking about designing applications to mitigate stress, and uh, and you know, as as Ryan pointed out, the stress uh, positive responses we're going to get are come in the form of optimal temperatures, not in excessive temperatures, because again, we're relying on mass flow and all that. Um, then the second piece of this is the product that's been put together of a lawn lux. And then another one that contained calcium sulfate, uh, as gypsum. And then we've got a little sodium nitrate and soybean meal. There's nothing really about this that is pointing it as an advantage of one over the other. And if the, it's the concept that it's going to be plan available, well, it's not necessarily that either. Um, so while this sounds fun and good and is a great way to highlight uh, your Lawn Lux box that, that Anderson's is putting out there, and it's a great way to capitalize on the search engine optimization pool that you're going to get from plugging another fucking Yarn Mastery product, um, this is a very, very creative way to market something and to, and to bring it out to people. However, the factuality behind each determine uh, uh, each uh, statement for each of the products that were put forth here is uh, is is horrifically wrong, um, and and the idea of the benefits you're going to get from these products uh, is horrifically wrong, and uh, so um, a uh, a for creativity, uh, a D for execution, and F for uh, uh, the, the the quality of information that was put out there. So thank you. Uh, and uh, this has been our Joe Knows Turf. Um, all right, boys, we're going to wrap this up. We got we got a, a few more mail bags. We're we're going to have to dip into these on on Friday because uh, they it gets it, it gets it gets pretty intense, especially with this next one coming up with uh, with smart parts. There's there's going to be a lot to unpack there. And, and I will say this to the guy Ryan that wrote in: No, that does not sound extreme. Uh, and then uh, he wants to talk about silica, and then we can we can get into that too. So that's, we got two questions that are like a ten part question, and then one that's going to be like a four part question. So um, anyway, <laughs> we'll get into that on Thursday. Uh, gentlemen, thank you all for hanging out. Um, I I completely glossed over our sponsor, who was uh, who was our patron this week. I'm sorry, I'm not all together. I had I had a long weekend in Nashville. Uh, happy happy birthday to my <laughs> wife. I hope you had a great time. Happy Father's Day to all the dads out there. Remember, step up to the plate. Be a great dad. Be a great, be a great partner to your to your spouse and uh, and all that fun stuff. The, the responsibilities on you. Uh, uh, show the world that that you got what it takes. All right, boys. We'll see y'all on Thursday. <laughs>